Those pictures represent, I think I would say, the most treasured possession that God has given us, our children. They, um, they represent the, the gift of God to both family and church. And as I ponder this gift that God's given us, I keep going back to this story that we just read about Jesus as a boy in the temple. It's not a coincidence that God chooses Mary and Joseph. He doesn't just arbitrarily say, um, I'll put Jesus in any family. There is, there is a reason behind that. There is an intentionality with that. And we, we know that because God is concerned about their hearts and he knows their hearts. And we see that in the gospel story of Jesus' birth. When the angel comes to Joseph... In Matthew 1, Matthew tells us that, that Joseph is a good man. And he proves that he's a good man because when God asks him to completely give away his reputation to obey the Father, he does it. The scripture says Mary is a righteous woman. And we know that she's a righteous woman because when the angel asks her to put her reputation on the line and to do, be a part of something that no one's going to understand... She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever you want, I'll do it. That's the kind of, of heart and mind that God, into which God places his beloved son, who will end up being the savior of the world, into this home with people who love God and who are willing to sacrifice for God and, and give themselves away for God. And they are, a, they are a godly couple into whose home God places his son. But they're not perfect. They're human beings. They, they make mistakes. There are times, I'm sure, when they get, they get irritated and frustrated with Jesus. Times where they make mistakes. Times when they, when they react in ways that they shouldn't. I think you get a little glimpse of that in the story. They've been searching for Jesus in Jerusalem for three days. Can't imagine how panicked they must be. I remember when Andrew... He wasn't always this tall as he was, as you see him today. But when he was small, maybe three or four years old, we were in the department store in the mall shopping, and we were in the clothes section, and we were all together, and the next thing, we weren't all together. And we couldn't find him. And we're, we're looking everywhere, and we're panicked, and we're calling out his name, and, you know, we didn't care how many people heard us. We wanted everybody to hear us. And we're calling out, looking everywhere we possibly can. It, it probably was five minutes we looked for him. It seemed like two or three hours. And eventually we heard this little giggling coming from his clothes rack. And we kind of peered into it, and there he was. He, he was playing hide-and-seek. He thought it was the funniest thing in the world. We were not as amused as he was hoping we would be. And I'm sure we informed him of that. It's one of those moments where you want to hug him and shake him at the same time. That was five minutes, maybe. I can't imagine three days. I, I, I love the way the Scripture talks about this, though I, I have to tell you that you know, the NIV says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I'm not sure that really gets the spirit of it. The New Living Translation says, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. But I think as probably typically in these situations, the message seems to hit it. 
Young man, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been half out of our minds looking for you. I think that's more like it right there. Young man, you know, I don't know if Jesus has a middle name, but if he has one, I'm sure he heard it that day. Jesus, bar Joseph, what are you doing to us? Get over here, right? And of course, Mary and Joseph are panicked. Not only has Jesus, if they can't find Jesus, but they have to be looking at each other saying, we are in so much trouble, we have lost the Son of God. This is bad. This is really, really bad. This, people are never going to forgive us for this. You know, they're panicked. It's a crazy situation. I can't even imagine how, how desperate they are. And here they come and they find him. And Jesus says to them, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? They have to pull their hair out. Now, we don't know the tone of voice. You know, I'd love to be able to see this scene unfold and exactly how Jesus says that. But what we, you know, what strikes me as I read the Gospels is Jesus has this, I don't know, almost magnetic attraction to Jerusalem and the temple. There are a number of times in the Gospels where the writers tell us Jesus refrained from going to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is is the city of God. And the temple is the place where God dwells. In Exodus, when the tabernacle is completed, the glory of the Lord comes down into the Holy of Holies. And it's the place where God dwells. And it is awesome. And God has made the temple and the tabernacle, the place where heaven and earth come together, the place where God's presence is experienced, the place where you see God and you feel God and and you, and you encounter God. And the city of Jerusalem has that sort of dynamic as well. It is the place, the Psalms tell us, where, where heaven and earth come together And it's a place out of which eventually God will redeem the world. It's It's his home base. And Jesus understands that. And there's this magnetic attraction to be where God is. And to be in the place where God is working. At the end of his life, he gets up, goes up on the mountain... And he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the city of Jerusalem. This place that was intended to be the center of all that God wanted to do in the world has rejected him and his son. Then Jesus goes into the temple, the same place where 20-some years earlier he had been as a boy Now he goes into the temple, and it's like a flea market. No wonder he throws the coins across the floor and turns over the tables. This place where people encounter God has now become a place where people just want to make money. It's the ultimate of blasphemy. And it breaks his heart, because this place where people are going to experience God has has lost its purpose. And Jesus says to his parents, I'm in the place where God is. I'm coming. I have this attraction. I want to be here. And I have a sense in which what Jesus is saying to them is, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Meaning, I just went to the place where you taught me to be. 
How does Jesus know that, that the temple is the place of God? How does Jesus know all about the dynamics of his faith? It's from his family and it's from the synagogue. It's, he was trained in the faith. Yes, he's the son of God. And yes, he is a unique child. But he's still a, regular, a 12-year-old boy. And one of the foundations of our faith is that God, Jesus is not just fully God, but he's fully human. We just come through the period of time where we focus on the incarnation of God in human flesh. And this 12-year-old boy has learned to love the things of God and to desire the things of God and to be in the places of God. Because in his home and in the synagogue, he was taught the things of God. When we think about the children on these screens... And the children around us and the youth in our church, we begin to understand that our calling as family and church is to nurture the faith of our children so that when they get older, they want nothing more than to be where God is. That the most natural thing in the world is for them to embrace the faith that they've been taught. And it's our responsibility in our homes and in the church to nurture that kind of faith in our children. That's one of the reasons why we have Sunday school, and kids club, and junior church, and children's church, and, and all of these programs, a preschool. We do all these things, and we invest time and talent and treasures into these programs because our children are important to us. People give their time and energy to prepare for classes. And people come down here where they could be doing a hundred other things in order to work with our children. And we give a lot of money. We put a lot of money into our budget to pay staff and to buy curriculum and to send people to seminars and to, and to do events. All of this because it is, it is essential to us to nurture the faith of our children. And so we invest in them. And we teach them. We teach them the truths of Scripture. Our goal is not so much to teach them what we believe as what God, of who God is and what God tells us is important. We teach them this, the value of Scripture. We teach them who God is. We teach them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We teach them. We train them. We work with them. Right and wrong truth and falsehood. We also protect them. We live in a world, and we see it, we've seen it so clearly in these past few months, in which we recognize the vulnerability of children in a way that ought to just tear our hearts out. It's, it's always horrific when children are treated in heinous ways, but it's even more horrific when that happens in the places where children expect to be safe. We take that seriously. Because we believe it's part of our calling to do everything we can to help our children be safe. And for the past 20-some years, more than that, We've been implementing programs and and policies and and taking steps to help protect our children. And we are so grateful that that we've had no incidents. And we're going to continue to do that. 
And over the course of the next few months and, and on into the year and beyond, we'll be talking about new ways for us to help protect our children. And, and if you're like me, one of our first responses is, well, we didn't worry about that in our generation. Maybe we should have. And things are different. And, and sometimes, I'd say often, these measures we take inconvenience us a little bit. But that's a small price to pay to protect our children. And so when you hear about another step that we're taking or one more, one more decision that we're making to protect our children, and you think, why are we doing that? This is why we're doing that. We want to be a safe place for our children. That's one of the reasons why royal family is so important to us. For a week... Children who've been abused and neglected have an opportunity to, to think and to believe that life can be different. That there are people who will treat them the way that God intended them to be treated. And there's a God who loves them and wants to heal them and wants to draw them to himself. Do you know all of this... The importance of being at the church is vital. And the importance of being in our homes is vital. And, and the structured settings are, are, are significant. But I have found, both as I ponder my own life and as I talk to other people, that often the most, the most profound witness of the gospel to children and teenagers is how we live our lives when we're not in the structured settings. Do our words and our actions match up? Do what we say we believe, does that come out in the way we live our lives, in the decisions that we make, in the way things we say about people, the way that we treat people, in the things that we do? Do they look at us and say, that life matches up? Yeah, they're not perfect, but you know, I see it. I see Jesus in them. When they know people are looking and when they think no one is looking. When we dedicate and baptize our children, I talk about the triangle and how the child is, I see it visualized this, this experience as the child being inside the triangle and God is the base. He's the foundation of everything. He loves children. We see that so clearly. I almost always read Mark chapter 10 where Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He goes on to say, in fact, I'll tell you the truth, if you aren't won't be like a little child. You can't even enter the kingdom. God is, we know God is at work in, our, in the lives of our children. And everything that anybody else does is because of that foundation. And one side of the triangle is family. The responsibility of family in the home to train and to teach and to nurture and to model following Jesus. And the other side of the triangle is us, the church. See, it doesn't matter if we have children in a home or not. We have a significant role to be a role model to our children. To model faith, to teach them, to love them, help them to see what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And that's a huge role for us. And I also like to think that that triangle is padded. Because our children need room to bounce around a little bit. You know, we, need, we want to be a place where, where children know it's okay to ask questions. Hard questions. It's okay to, to have doubts. It's okay to struggle with their faith. It's okay to wrestle with things. Because that's how you work through it. 
And instead of us running away from that, we embrace it. We say, this is awesome that you're thinking this much about it, that you're asking these kinds of questions. Let's sit down and talk about this. Let me, let me listen to you. What's on your mind? What's on your heart? Let's hear it. And this becomes a safe place for our children and our teenagers to work through things. Because the opposite of that is that we say, look, we don't talk about that stuff. That's too complicated. That's too hard. Just do what we tell you. I find that that usually doesn't end well. Because the questions don't go away. We're a church where, where, pe- where our young people have the freedom to say, I've got some questions. And we might not have the answers. In fact, a lot of times we don't have the answers. But we listen and we value them. And we care for them. And we help them. You see, what we're not trying to do in all of this, we're not trying to indoctrinate our children. We're trying to nurture the faith of our children. And there is a difference. If the goal is indoctrination, then we tell them, this is what you believe. You can't believe anything else. You get into our box, and that's what matters. And we will tell you how to live your life. There are times where you want to tell them how to live their life, but obviously sometimes you can't. That's not really what we're looking for. We're not looking for people. We're not trying to create clones of us. We're not trying to to get our children to grow up and look like us. We're trying to get our children to grow up and look like Jesus. And what we're trying to do is to nurture their faith so that when they get to this point in life, they have the ability to make their decisions about Jesus and to think about Jesus and to embrace Jesus for themselves. Not because we forced it on them, not because we have threatened them or created fear in them, but because we have created such an atmosphere of desiring God that they want nothing else than God. And they want to be all in with God. But they have to make that decision. We cannot make that for them. And that's hard. I think one of the, the, the difference between, between this mindset of indoctrinating and, and nurturing is that we come to our children in a spirit of humility. We say, we don't have all the answers. We don't understand everything. We wrestle with stuff too, but let's walk through it together. And we listen to you. And eventually, we have to release our children to God. That's eventually what we do. And that's hard. Whether you're talking about family or the church. It's hard to release our children to God. We, we say, okay, we're so happy that they're following Jesus. As long as following Jesus looks like what we want it to look like. And sometimes it doesn't. I think Mary wrestles with that. There are a couple of times in the Gospels where you just sort of get the feeling that she comes up to Jesus and grabs him by the wrist and says, you know what, why don't you come home with me for a while? This is getting a little weird. I mean, I appreciate the fact that, you know, that you're helping people and things, but man, you're saying some stuff that I don't understand. It takes Mary, I think, most of Jesus' life before she finally gets it. At the temple, when Jesus is a boy, he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And what does Luke say? Mary and Joseph look at each other and say, I have no idea what this kid's talking about. It's hard sometimes. Sometimes our children make decisions that are beyond us. 
make us nervous, uncomfortable. Can we be okay with that? Knowing that they are walking where God is leading them? I remember reading years ago about a guy named Robert Short who said that he was raised in a you know, anomaly Christian home. They went to church, you know, talked about Jesus. And he got in high school and started hanging out with some, some other guys and people. And, and eventually out of that, he became an agnostic. He said, I still remember the day, he said, my, the principal had called my mom in because I was creating havoc at the school and came home. He said, I still remember sitting around the kitchen table, my mother, tears pouring down her face. She said, I, I thought we raised you right. I can't believe this. Our son, an agnostic. He said, I went away to college and got connected with some different people and I, I found my, my faith in Jesus. He said, my life was turned all around. He said, I actually felt a call to full-time ministry. He said, I remember coming home that break and, and sitting at that same kitchen table and pouring out my heart to my mother about what God had done in my life and what God was calling me to be. And he said, there she was again, tears pouring down her face. She said, I thought we raised you right. I can't believe this. My son, a religious fanatic. <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes it sort of feels that way. We have to let our kids go into the, the place of God. They're seeking God. And that may look different than how we do. But that's okay. In the church, we struggle with that. Jesus spent his life in the synagogue in Nazareth. Those people trained him, nurtured him. The rabbis, he worshipped with them. They knew him. He comes back when he starts his ministry. And Luke 4 says he went back to the synagogue there in Nazareth. And he started preaching to them and explaining the scriptures. And they're in awe of him. Wow. Our own boy, look at how good he is. This is amazing. And they love it. Until he starts challenging them about their belief system. And he starts talking to them about things that they don't want to hear. Trying to push them beyond what they have always thought. And now they, the mood changes. And they're ready to throw him off a cliff. As a church, we watch our young people grow up. And they follow Jesus, and sometimes that leads them to things that make us uncomfortable. But here's what God's calling us to do. God's calling us to release them to Him and to find joy in the fact that maybe our children outdistance us spiritually. And be excited about that. To see our children take spiritual risks that we might not take. To see our children work in places for God that we might not ever go. To see our children more all in for Jesus than we have been in our hesitancy. And in that moment, the roles get reversed. And now, we're not just nurturing them. They're nurturing us. And they're calling us to something deeper. Something more. Because that's the way God tends to work. That's certainly what we see in Jesus. It's ironic to me that everybody in that room who is amazed at Jesus and have no clue what's going on there eventually has to make a decision about whether he's going to be their savior or not. And many of them simply can't find it in themselves to humble themselves before Jesus and to let him change their lives. You and I will wrestle with that too. 
But instead of lamenting what God's doing with our children, we celebrate and we rejoice. And we say to ourselves, I want to be a part of that too. And we can release our children to God wholeheartedly and fully because we are releasing them to the one who loves them more than we will ever love them. We're releasing our children to the one whose love for them far exceeds what our love could ever be. And what better thing could we do than that? Because we begin to believe God is who He says He is. We can trust our children to Him. Find joy in doing it. One of my favorite stories of Karl Barth is when he was retiring from teaching. This this man who's one of the most profound theologians of the 20th century, whether you agree or disagree with his theological positions, you cannot argue the fact that he had a profound theological mind. He wrote volumes of theological material. He went through all of the issues of of the German church during the Nazi time of the war. And and he he was a profound thinker of church and the gospel. And in this press conference they had at his retirement, they were asking him all kinds of questions. And, And one of the people there said to him, Dr. Bart, you have written extensively. You've written deeply, profoundly. You, you have explained all kinds of things. You learned all kinds of things. So when you take all of it, what's the most profound thing that you've learned? Thought a minute. He said, well, I have to say the most profound thing I ever learned was actually something I learned at the feet of my mother. So I'd summarize it something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. When we begin to believe that, we'll enable our children to begin to believe that. And that truth is where faith begins, where faith is rooted. And it's the heart of the nurturing in our lives, in our children, in each other. Father, thank you for the gifts you've given us. Help us, help us to be faithful nurturers as you've called us to be. And I pray this through Christ Jesus.